Good morning, Sun Valley Church. You can stay open to Matthew 7. That will be very helpful. I'm grateful for the chance to preach to you this morning, my friends. I'm also sad that it is the last time I'll be doing so. Uh, The Lord's purposes are progressing in my family's life, but it's not yet clear where he's calling me. I do know, however, that I will not be preaching at Sun Valley again. And it's been a joy to preach several times a year for the years that I've been here. In the Lord's providence, my time serving as one of your pastors is coming to a close. And as I was reflecting on this moment, I was thinking, I couldn't help but thinking of uh, the parting sentiment of Bilbo Baggins. Of course, why wouldn't I? I've been reading uh, The Fellowship of the Ring to my children for some time. And at the beginning of that book, Bilbo says farewell at his birthday party to all the people he's lived with for so long. And he says, I want to tell you that I'm immensely fond of you all and that 111 years is too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable hobbits. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. (laughs) we're We're not hobbits, and I'm... I've not been around for 111 years. However, um, after the immense privilege of serving as one of your pastors, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I love you very dearly. And I'm grateful to be able to finish my series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which I've cherished walking with you through. Now, the last sermon I preached uh, back in February was from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus tells us to use right judgment and to avoid judgmentalism. Uh, that whole specks and logs, pigs and dogs business. Now, there are five sermons I should like to have preached between that and today's text, which would have brought us to the end of chapter 7, but it was not to be. So, my plan today is to briefly tie together the whole Sermon on the Mount by remembering what we've seen, by summarizing the sections of the Sermon on the Mount that we have not yet seen, and then coming to focus on verses 28 and 29 together, which is the response of the people to the Sermon on the Mount, which is very instructive for us. So let me tell you from the outset what Jesus is doing in the entire Sermon on the Mount, what his aim is, what he's after in the people he preached to. He is after obedient faith. He's after obedient faith. Both of those words, obedient and faith, are vital if we are to understand what the Sermon on the Mount is about. You see, many, many people through the centuries have entered into the wide gate that leads to destruction because they have twisted Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and made them simply a set of moral rules for life. They've entirely missed the fact that the only way to live the Sermon on the Mount is by faith in the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is plain to us in the Beatitudes at the beginning where he says that it's those who mourn, the poor in spirit who know that they have no righteousness of their own, who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Jesus. These are those whose faith is placed in him who then go on to live the blessed life that we see. It's faith in Jesus that allows us to pray the Lord's Prayer to God as our Father, knowing him in the forgiveness of our sins. And at the judgment, as we've seen read in Matthew 7, knowing Jesus is the basis for our entrance into the kingdom of heaven, not whether or not we were good enough, because we're not good enough, we never could be. And every time somebody has tried to live the Sermon on the Mount apart from faith in the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount, they have realized, ultimately, 
to their own destruction, that they did not heed what Jesus said at all, because it all centers on him. We need to know Jesus, because the Sermon on the Mount is about a life of faith in him, but not just any kind of faith. It's about true, authentic, obedient faith, the kind of faith that shows itself by being the salt of the earth, preserving goodness, truth, and beauty, the glory of God in a culture that is decaying under sin and rot, having a godly influence by showing Jesus as the light of the world in darkness, the kind of faith that makes war on anger in our hearts, on lust, lying, retaliation, and selfishness. It's a sermon about the kind of faith that gives and prays and draws near to God, trusting that he is our good father. So we don't need to be anxious. A faith that is gracious to others and single-mindedly set on glorifying God. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It's the kind of faith of those who are citizens of the kingdom of which Jesus is the king. And this is what we've been looking about uh, in the Sermon on the Mount over the past four or five years. Everything about this sermon is centered on Jesus and the only people for whom the sermon is intended is those who know they can't pull it off. And so they come to him, putting their whole hope in him. In other words, it's for Christians. It's for Christians. Which is why in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 2, even though the crowds surround him on that mountainside, Jesus turns to his disciples and teaches them. And if the crowds who were there had listened to what Jesus said, if they understood the meaning of his words, they would know that he was preaching for their obedient faith in him. And that brings us to where we left off last time at Matthew 7 and verse 7. This famous section about asking, seeking, knocking, and the doors being opened, and we find what we ask for and seek. And what we see here is that Jesus wants you to come to your generous Father with all your needs. And he wants us to come to our generous Father with all our needs, the way that kids do with their dads. And this is about a close relationship of intimacy with God, who loves us and saves us through his Son. So even earthly fathers who are sinful give good gifts to their children. Even, even the most unbelieving dads love their kids and don't pull a bait and switch when their kids say, hey, dad, can I have a jump rope? He's like, yeah, sure, here's a rattlesnake. That'll teach him, right? Or, or hey, dad, I'm hungry. Can I have a bowl of Cheerios? Sure, here's a box of rocks. You're just like, get that guy reported to somebody. But, but that's thankfully quite rare. Because even dads with evil hearts meet their kids' needs in love. And certainly our perfect Father God meets the needs of his children. And he calls us to ask. He wants closeness with us. He's a generous Father. And he loves you. And then moving to verses 12 through 14, we see that the path of life is a path that trusts in Christ alone. And shows that trust in loving your neighbor. Jesus gives us the famous golden rule in verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is really just another way of saying the great commandments that Jesus gives later in Matthew, to love the Lord your God with your whole life and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what following Jesus in faith boils down to. And he lays out two paths. Two paths for two kinds of people in the world. First, there's those who enter through the narrow gate that leads to life, a path that's hard but good. Its destination is the presence of God, and its gates are none other than Christ himself. 
In John 10 and verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enter by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is that door. He is the gate that leads to life. The other kind of people walk right past the gate of Christ in favor of a life that's at home in the world and that rejects the triune God of the Bible. This is the broad gate and the broad path that leads to destruction. And every one of us would be on that path and were until the grace of God came, made us new, and got a hold of us in Jesus. But sometimes on the narrow path, you run into people who actually aren't on the path at all. They're only there to try to trip others up who are on the narrow path, to try to waylay their relationship with God, which is why Jesus tells us in verses 15 through 20 to watch out for disobedient pretenders. He warns us against false prophets. And the way to, to spot a false believer is to look at their life. There's no interest in following Christ, no interest in a relationship with him, no zeal for holiness, no war against sin. It's scary to think about, but the true test of authentic faith is a life that is growing in love for and obedience to Jesus. And for all whose consciences are tender in their own walk with Christ, I would remind you that this is a lifelong growth. If you take a cross-section of any part of your Christian life and you just look at that, you may not see much growth at all and you may become scared. But friends, never fear. Perfect love casts out judgment. If your faith is in Jesus alone and you have repented of and are repenting of your sins, that, my friends, is a guarantee that God will finish the work he began. The life of obedient faith over the long haul is the Christian life, the kind of life that Jesus wants as a result of the Sermon on the Mount. False prophets don't live that kind of life. False prophets have no interest in truly knowing God. And here in verses 15 through 20, he famously says that good trees can't bear bad fruit and bad trees can't bear good fruit. And hint, it's not about trees at all. Because true Christians, the good trees in this uh, word picture, follow Christ in obedient faith. Follow Christ in obedient faith. And this is the point of one of the most startling passages, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in the whole Bible. One that a lot of people don't really go to to meditate on in the morning to get jazzed about waking up. Verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When Jesus gathers people before his judgment seat, many, many people will adamantly profess faith in him. The exclamation, Lord, Lord, this is an emphatic, uh, emphatic claim to be following Christ. And many people will have resumes on that day full of impressive ministry. They always seem to have a prophetic word. If there was a healing to be done, they were always there to try to do it. Demon, cool, we got this. Look, Jesus, my resume is full of good works. To which Jesus says to these false professors of faith, I didn't know you. You weren't obedient to me. You were more concerned with the appearance of Christianity than you were with heart Christianity, which is to say the only kind there is. These people don't know Jesus. They trusted in their works instead of their Savior, and that made all of their works wicked, faithless, and empty. 
True Christians follow Christ in obedient trust. They know him. They know him. And it's only true Christians who are safe on Judgment Day, which is verses 24 through 27, the final words of the Sermon on the Mount. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down, and the floods came up, and the house on the rock stood firm. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rains came down, and the flood came up, and the house on the sand went splat. That's the part of preschool Sunday school everybody hears throughout the whole church because the kids love it. It's judgment day. That's what the storm is. The storm is the coming judgment of Jesus as king returning to save his people and to condemn a world that has rejected him. Okay? And it is only true Christians who withstand on judgment day because their faith was in Jesus. On Christ the solid rock I stand. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. No, Paul's not giving out a death wish, okay? He's just saying it's going to be so good. It's going to be so good whenever we get there. So, whether we are at home or away, alive or dead, we make it our aim. This is the aim of the Christian life, to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Only those who follow Christ in obedient faith will be safe on judgment day. They are the ones who wisely build their lives on Christ. This is what chapter 7 is about, truly knowing Christ. The great 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, is affectionately called the Prince of Preachers, because his preaching was so widespread, so eloquent, so powerful, and so faithful. I read this week that it's estimated that he preached to 10 million people in his ministry. He captivated millions with his preaching, and he preached the same message that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, which is to say, he preached Christ. And if Charles Spurgeon is the prince of preachers, then in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus as the king of preachers. And not only because his sermon is perfect, but because he is the king of the kingdom of heaven. And in this sermon, he shows people what it means to live as citizens of that kingdom. Truly, Jesus is the king of preachers, preaching to his people. And everything that Jesus does in Matthew 5 through 7 builds to this final sequence of passages that we've seen, which all make this one concluding point, that a life of faith in Jesus is a life of obedience to Jesus. And because Jesus is king of all of his people's lives, in every little detail, there is so much packed into this short sermon. He deals with our home lives, our thought lives, our emotions, our integrity, our speech, how we relate to our enemies, how we live as citizens in our culture, how we pray and give and fast and how we trust God so that we don't need to be anxious. It's like he leaves no stone unturned because he's letting you know no detail of our lives is too small because he's Lord of all of it. Which brings us to our main text, verses 28 through 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. First, we need to consider the crowd's response to Jesus, and then we'll consider why they responded that way. Well, Matthew captures the response of the crowds very briefly. 
astonishment at Jesus. They were astonished, not just at what Jesus said, but who Jesus is. Look at the beginning of verse 28, this phrase, and when Jesus finished these sayings, and when Jesus finished these sayings, two things are going on here. First, this exact phrase, or one form very close to it, is used five times in the Gospel of Matthew, always when Jesus finishes a significant block of teaching. Because Matthew's Gospel is organized around five major teaching blocks, and this phrase, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, signals the end of that, and it weaves right into something Jesus does. It goes straight from what Jesus says to what Jesus does, and that narrative then takes you to the next block of teaching that ends with that phrase and keeps going into the narrative, but not here. This is the one place where this phrase is used in the Gospel of Matthew, where it's, when Jesus said these things, this is how people responded, full stop. And what Matthew's doing is he's highlighting the massive significance of the Sermon on the Mount for us. He wants us to linger here. And second, Matthew lets us know what the people were responding to they were responding to these sayings, it says. Well, which sayings? Well, all of Matthew 5 through 7, everything just that Jesus has just said, the entire Sermon on the Mount. And it's significant that we see whose response Matthew focuses on, because there's two groups of people at the Sermon on the Mount. Look with me back just a couple of pages at the end of Matthew 4, going into Matthew 5. Matthew 4, in verse 25 And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Okay, Jesus had called his 12 disciples shortly before this, and they followed him. Where Jesus goes, you see his disciples going. They were all in. Okay, they were on Team Jesus, make no doubt about it. They may not have understood the fullness of who Jesus was at that point, the way they would after his resurrection, but they were there for all of it. And they are the ones that Jesus turned to and taught. But they weren't most of the people there. Most of the people were part of this great crowd that had been following Jesus. And why were they following him? Well, because he was teaching them things they'd never heard before. And get this, he was healing them. Are you kidding me? The guy who can heal what our doctors can't, and, our, and we had to pay our doctors, right? The co-pays were crazy. Jesus doesn't charge anything, and he's healing us, and he's teaching us the way that no one else. We've never met a guy like this. Of course they're following him. And Jesus saw the crowds and went up on the mountain and sat down and turned to his disciples and taught them. And this makes sense, because we've seen from our very first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus... Uh, preaches this sermon to people who know him, who are committed to him, who trust in him, because they are the ones who aren't going to get this wrong and try to pull it off without him. But the disciples were just a few. The crowds were great. Great crowds listened to what Jesus said, and it was the crowds that Matthew focuses in on when he says, they were astonished. The word translated astonished is used up to, uh, it's used 13 times in the New Testament. 
Okay, the word astonished here is used 13 times in the New Testament, and every time it has the same sense. It's a very strong verb. Ekpleso is what it is. And it's not just getting someone's attention. No, no. When the crowds are astonished at Jesus, their minds are blown. They're just, they don't even know what to do with it. They, they, they turn to each other and they go, I can't even with this guy. That's what astonishment is. Ten out of the 13 times this kind of astonishment happens in the New Testament, it's because of Jesus' teaching. It's because of Jesus' teaching. Because King Jesus is an astonishing king, and his teaching is like nothing else. Now, the fact that he was teaching wasn't the crazy part. First century Jews were used to teaching. They had lots of teachers. Okay? So here's the reason for the response of the crowds. It's not Jesus' teaching, it's Jesus' authority, verse 29. He was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. If the Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom of God, then the king who's preaching it has real authority in that kingdom. The people were used to the teaching of the scribes, which was very different from what Jesus was doing. Who Jesus is and how he taught was what got their attention. So let's take a look at the authority of the scribes to get a sense for why Jesus was so astounding. Okay? Let's look at the scribes' authority. See, scribes had been around for a long time. Uh, we read at, uh, in the 6th century B.C., right? Right after Israel had come back from their captivity in Babylon, we read about the most famous of scribes, Ezra. It says in Ezra 7, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Ezra was a great guy. It's why Christians sometimes name their kids after him. Scribes had a pretty good start, okay? They really loved God and wanted to be faithful to his word. But by the time that Jesus comes around, uh, when the eternal son of God became man, scribes had morphed into something quite a bit different than we see Ezra being. The scribes of Jesus' day were the great scholars of the day who spent decades studying. They spent their lives reading and writing and memorizing not only the Old Testament, but what generations of scribes who had gone before them said about the Old Testament and especially the law of Moses. Everyone looked up to the scribes as the authorities in Jewish life. If a scribe said something, the question wasn't, should we do that thing? The question is, well, there is no question. We've got to do that thing. The scribes had authority. Even Jesus recognized this. So in Matthew 23, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. By and large, the scribes of Jesus' day had become experts in a Bible they didn't care about. Jesus called them hypocrites because they were concerned about the minutia of God's law, but not the heart behind it. But what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus getting to the heart of anger, lust, marriage, divorce, retaliation, loving your enemies, praying, giving, fasting, all of it, to the heart, because that's the kind of obedient faith that Jesus wants. In the process, these scribes had ended up living as lawbreakers while the people praised them as being the holiest and most biblical men around. The esteemed title rabbi was a scribal title. And what kind of scribal teaching were the Jewish people used to? 
parrot teaching. Because the scribes very rarely taught anything original. They never gave their own teaching. They only parroted what generations of commentators long dead had said before them. Once in a while, you got a scribe bringing something a little new to the table, but that was rare. The teaching of the scribes was a string of quotes, and they always appealed to the authority of old dead Jewish teachers to back up what they said. Jesus, however, didn't. The authority of the scribes was an authority of tradition, and you don't mess with tradition. That's just not what we do. Thinking of Tevye, of course. You may ask why we have these little shawls that we wear. I'll tell you. I don't know. It's tradition. <laughs> Jesus knew why he taught what he did. The scribes, though, elevated the traditions of men to the same level as the word of God, and sometimes, through clever sleight of hand, would make the tradition more important than what God had actually said. Their authority was fake authority. Jesus, however, had true authority. Point for point, his teaching stood in stark contrast to what the scribes were teaching. The scribes constantly quoted commentaries. Jesus quoted the word of God. How many times in the Sermon on the Mount does Jesus say, you have heard that it was said by those of old. In other words, here's your tradition about this, that, and the other point of what Moses wrote. But I tell you, who are you to tell us? Ah, oh, This is not like any other man. The scribes quote men, Jesus quotes God. The scribes burdened people with their teaching and then didn't live by what they themselves said. Jesus said, bear my yoke upon you, your burden will be light. Jesus freed people through his teaching. The life of the Sermon on the Mount is impossible for a sinful person to obey perfectly. And it's summed up, here's the standard of righteousness that Jesus taught. Matthew 5, 48, you therefore shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the people are like, come again? It's like, we're just, have you met, have you met us? <laughs> He's like, yes, that's the point. Because Jesus, unlike the scribes, perfectly lived what he preached. He is the perfect son of God who lived perfectly under the actual law of God so that sinners like us would have our sins placed on him and his perfect righteousness given to us. Do you see why we need the preacher? Because we can't pull off the sermon. The creed of the scribes was tradition, tradition, tradition. Jesus, though, is the ever-living I am who precedes all tradition. And his word has true authority. That's why all through the Sermon on the Mount, he pits his authoritative interpretation of God's word against that of the ancient scribes because his authority is an independent authority. So why were they so astonished as if we don't see a glimpse already? Well, I think we cannot do justice to what the people were seeing about Jesus unless we take his authority in our hands, as it were, and turn it around to, gl to glimpse the, the, the glory, because it is a multifaceted glory that we see in Jesus' authority. Let's catch a glimpse of what those crowds glimpsed that day. They didn't understand it, but by God's grace, we do. We will. And the first glimpse of the glory of Jesus we see that day is his divine authority as God. Jesus speaks with authority because he has all authority in himself as the second person of the Trinity. He is God. 
who together with the Father and the Holy Spirit eternally reigns. All authority is in him. In fact, every lesser authority, both on earth and in the angelic realms, holy angels and demons, all authorities, Paul puts into focus and says they all came through Jesus and they exist for Jesus. Colossians 1, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. And when the crowds that day saw the authority of Jesus, they saw the authority of God who has authority over every authority. That's pretty good. They didn't understand it in those terms, but they were astonished. It's, a, it's an authority that no scribe ever dreamt of possessing. And not only does Jesus have divine authority of God, but he, he has saving authority as Redeemer. This authority has to do with his work as savior in becoming man for our salvation. He has authority as eternal God, but now we see him receiving authority from his father as man to save his people from their sins. This authority included the miracles he did, the demons he cast out, and the forgiveness he declared and accomplished. See, just two chapters later in Matthew, okay, in Matthew 9, Jesus heals a paralytic and then says, your sins are forgiven. There were scribes present on that day. They didn't like it too much. In fact, they were grumbling within themselves as they watched Jesus. And then, and then when he said, your sins are forgiven, they're like, who is this guy? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, yep, that's the point. That's the point. And so Jesus says, knowing their thoughts, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, same word, on earth to forgive sins. Then turning to the man, he says, rise, pick up your mat and go home. <laughs> the guy gets up. And the message in the guy's first step, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. See, diseased and crippled people need healing, but they need their sins forgiven more. Our diseases, our physical disorders, they die with us. Our immortal souls, laden with our sins, live forever in condemnation if not for the forgiving authority of Jesus. The crowds who flocked to Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount were there because they saw him heal and they wanted more. I mean, who wouldn't, right? Like, that's a good deal. What they heard in his preaching, though, was the forgiveness of the sins that their hearts supremely needed. That's the glimpse that they got that was so amazing. And so Jesus prays the night of his arrest, Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you since you have given him authority, same word, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Friends, the reason you sit here this morning with your sins forgiven in Christ is because Jesus has exercised his authority for you by name. And it is a good authority. And the crowds at the mountain that day also marveled because they were hearing the authoritative words of Jesus as prophet. Not just the words and authority of Jesus as God or Redeemer, but as prophet. The scribes merely quoted commentaries about what the prophets said. Jesus is the prophet who's greater than all the others. 
One of the things that Matthew is doing is he's showing through his whole gospel, point for point, hey, here's Moses, here's your guy, right? And the Jews who listened and, and, and read Matthew would have been like, yes, because Moses was the guy that Jewish boys would put the posters you know, on their bedroom wall. It's like, oh, Moses, there's no one greater than Moses. But then Matthew holds up Jesus. And he says, hey, Moses went up on a mountain. He gave a law. It changed your world. And Jesus here goes up on a mountain, gives a law that changes the world. Okay. Moses at point four, and Moses predicted, he prophesied before he died on the plains of Moab that Jesus would come. And here he is. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus shows up on this mountain as that prophet, declares the law of Moses in its true intention, and then at the end he says, it is on the basis of whether you heed my words that you will either be acquitted or condemned. It is on the basis of your faith in me, expressed through an obedient repentance from your sins, that you will have my righteousness when you have none of your own. And that brings us to the fourth aspect of Jesus' authority at which the crowds marveled. And it was his authority as judge. His authority as judge. His judicial authority. Jesus' authority as judge was audacious to claim. No man had ever dreamt of claiming what Jesus did here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not only that Jesus' words would be the basis for judgment, but that he himself would be the judge. Oh. Can we, just, can we just take a moment? And Matthew's like, yeah, we can take a moment. That's why there's the full stop after it. And Jesus said these things. Yeah, reflect on that for a moment. The crowds would stand one day before Jesus. Scribes would never claim authority to judge in the kingdom of God. But Jesus says that he will be the one declaring to many on that day, I never knew you, depart from me. Jesus plainly preached that he has the authority that no scribe does. And then lastly, but by no means exhaustively, Jesus has ruling authority as king. And that's what we see here in the sermon. In a very real sense, this sermon is the king of the kingdom giving laws for the citizens of the kingdom. Not the kind of laws that burden, the kind of laws that free. Not the kind of laws that condemn, but the kind of laws that are for those who have been acquitted of all condemnation. By saying what he says and demanding obedience, he's exercising, even here in the Sermon on the Mount, his ruling authority as king. And it was unlike anything these people had ever heard, and they were astonished. And this is the kingly authority that we see at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. No, I'm sorry, the very end of the whole Gospel of Matthew. The last thing Jesus says before he ascends in Matthew's Gospel. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus' authority is total. It spans every molecule of the cosmos. He has the right to rule over it all, and he does rule over it all. And that's what the word translated authority here means. It means the right to rule. Many people try to rule who have no right to do so. Toddlers, 
right? Jesus shows up with the authority to rule and the power to do so. And it staggered those who were listening that day. It blew their minds. And so I would simply ask, what about you? What about you? The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous sermon in the world, preached by the greatest preacher in the world. Some of the most well-known sayings of the Bible come from the Sermon on the Mount. Gurus and teachers from world religions all the world over quote from it, and they laud it as being an excellent piece of moral teaching. Mahatma Gandhi loved it. But every person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how they responded to the preacher of this sermon and whether they followed the words of the preacher in this sermon. And 100% of the words from this preacher led straight back to himself. And I think that that's part of the reason that Matthew reports the people's astonishment is because he wants to put our hearts on the table, as it were, uncomfortable as it is, and ask us, and what about you? And as I see it, I think there's three options for how we respond. And I want to ask you, which one is most true of you? Do you read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount and have no astonishment? Do you have empty astonishment? Or do you have obedient astonishment? Old sayings become old sayings for a reason. And one of the most well-known old sayings is familiarity breeds contempt. And one of the most popular uh, things about the Sermon on the Mount um, is that it's, uh, it's so popular. <laughs> it's so well-known. Uh, we can quote from it at the drop of a hat, even if we haven't read it in a long time. Could it be that some here are so familiar with Jesus' words that it's like, okay, great, yeah, what's for lunch? Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you know this sermon so well that you've lost the wonder of who's preaching it. Maybe his teachings that captured your heart when you first were exposed to them now just really don't even register much, and your, and your Fitbit's like, you know, resting heart rate. Is that you? It's easy to fall into. It's a common problem, but it is also a very, very big problem. And it's a big problem because King Jesus is worthy of our astonishment and our obedience, and he means to get it. That's why he preached this sermon. There are others, I am certain, who are unmoved by Jesus' words in this sermon because they simply do not know him. They simply do not know him. These are the people who have no allegiance to Jesus, no interest in holiness. They don't care to have a relationship with God. They would rather see what they could get from God. They don't have any war against sin. There, there's no astonishment for sure. If you're unmoved by Christ, could it be that you are still in your sins and you have yet to believe in him? And if that's possible, I have some encouragement for you. Jesus didn't preach the Sermon on the Mount to condemn you. He preached it to draw you. He preached it to put himself on display so that you could see the answer to all the questions you've been asking. Jesus, I got that song stuck in my head. Jesus is the answer for the world today. You remember that? Well, he is. Jesus preached this sermon to draw us to ourselves, and if you have breath in you, you can put your hope in this amazing king and have life in him. Recognize your spiritual poverty. Mourn over your sin. 
Come to him for the righteousness that only he has, and you will be pure in heart and see God. That's the promise. So whether you've never trusted in Christ or you've fallen out of wonder with Christ, what you need is a clear and present picture of the Savior we see in these pages. The crowds were astonished after the Sermon on the Mount because they got a clear and incredible picture of the Christ who has all authority, unlike anyone else. So study what we've looked at about Jesus. Comb over these pages and do it when you're alone with God, with an open heart that says, Lord, I don't wonder at you the way you are worthy, but I want to. Would you show me that kind of wonder? Will you show me who you are? You know, I get a feeling that this whole ask, seek, and knock business is aimed at those kinds of requests. Can you imagine God saying, no, 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 we're not going <laughs> to wonder at who I am. No, no, no. Try me. He will answer. There's a second way, however, that you might respond to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You may not be unmoved like those who aren't astonished, but you may be in the dangerous position of having empty astonishment. Because, friends, there is a world of difference between astonishment and obedience, or astonishment and belief. Okay? It's great when those two things go together, but they don't necessarily go together. The crowds were amazed by Jesus, which is good, right? Like, it's better that they be moved by Jesus than that they be indifferent to Jesus. How often, though, have we been amazed by something and then turned around and walked away unchanged? It's very easy to do, especially because we're so distracted today. But it's also possible to do that with Jesus, and it happens all the time. If you keep reading in Matthew and you look out for the word crowds, you actually find out that the crowds are something of another character in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 4 and 14, we see the crowds experiencing Jesus' miracles and teaching and being astonished. We see Jesus in chapter 9 looking at the crowds, same word, and then having compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. But then in chapter 13, the same crowds in the same region as the Sermon on the Mount are told parables by Jesus, and they don't understand what he's saying. Well, why would he do that? It's like if you're trying to, to teach people then why would you go out of your way to hide what you're saying from them? Like, that's not how you build your, you know, that's not how you build your business. Jesus tells us why he does it, though. He says, this is why I speak to the crowds in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, or I'm sorry, with their ears they can barely hear, with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Why did Jesus preach in parables to the crowds? You can't get a crowd in Galilee, which is where he said what he did in Matthew 13, without part of that crowd having been there at the mountain in Matthew 5 through 7 and being astonished. And yet Jesus says of them, they don't hear, they don't see, their hearts are dull. And that scares me. Beware of hearing Jesus' words and responding with emotional wonder, but then walking away unchanged. This is what Jesus' half-brother James warns us about. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks 
intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he saw. Uh, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed by his doing. The blessed life is the one that wonders at Jesus in obedience, which is the third response, obedient astonishment. And this is what sets apart the true disciples from the crowds who walked away unchanged. Being amazed by Christ is better than apathy toward Christ, but obedient amazement is true Christianity. That's what Jesus wants. The disciples left all and followed Jesus. Yeah, sure, it would be a while before they got the implications, but they were with him. He grew them, and they went on to teach us to live the kind of Sermon on the Mount lives that they themselves would live because they were there, they were astonished, and they obeyed by God's grace. And so where, where are you in all this? What do you do with the Sermon on the Mount? And if I could bring this whole thing to a close with a word of counsel, I would encourage you not to be content by simply reading the Sermon on the Mount and then saying, you know what, that's good. I wanna be like that. Like definitely do, do have that attitude toward, (laughs) toward the Sermon on the Mount. But if I know human nature, when we aim for everything, we very often hit little or nothing. And so I would encourage you to go for specifically obedient astonishment. What do I mean? What I mean is that in Matthew 5 through 7, we really see in microcosm the entire Christian life, which is to say a whole heck of a lot. There is a lot there. So read it and ask the Holy Spirit, what here are you wanting to do with me? What specifically do I see Jesus saying that takes me to task where I have been failing? Is it in anger? Is it that lust you've never been able to overcome? Is your prayer life paltry and so you need to camp out in the Lord's Prayer and learn to pray that? Is it giving, humility? What is it? What is the stronghold? Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus holds the key. Aim at specific obedience, fueled by amazement at the king who died so that you might live. And as for astonishment, that's simply another way of saying true worship. This is the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking, in spirit and in truth. And the path to true worship is daily sitting at the feet of the one who preached the Sermon on the Mount, who is a worthy king and a wonderful king. So study his perfections. Look at who he is Look for his work around you day by day. I heard a story about someone recently who was on vacation. It's just, I was told this story yesterday, and, and something incredible happened to them. And, and it just blew my mind. And I could, of course, I was thinking about astonishment because of this whole week I've been looking at this two verses. But I was truly astonished. And it was, it was amazement at the fact that Jesus is still doing stuff. He's still doing stuff. He, his, astonish, his astonishingness hasn't changed, but too often we don't have eyes to see it. So look, because he's here. He's at work in you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. So fight to see him, because King Jesus is worthy of your astonishment and obedience, and that, my friends, is how we rightly respond to the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Hmm. Lord Jesus, 
we come before you and through you to the Father by the Spirit, grateful, so grateful that you preached the Sermon on the Mount. So grateful that you inspired Matthew to record the response of the crowds so that we might take stock of our own hearts before you, that we might wonder at you for who you are. You are like no one else. You are beautiful beyond comparison. You are majestic beyond the greatest glory that the cosmos has to offer. You are the Lord of all. Have mercy on us, we pray, for how often we take for granted these astonishing truths, for how familiar they are, and so we don't wonder at them at all. Ignite once again. Revive our hearts, we pray, our wonder that Sun Valley Church may be a church in this place at this time for this reason that the nations might know and wonder at who you are and what you have done. Father, hear our prayer for the sake of your Son. Holy Spirit, bring it to pass. It is in the mighty name, the astonishing name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.